Well, in two weeks, God willing, we are going to be worshiping at our new facility over about a mile this way, the, the new Grace Bible Church. We, if you've been in our work days, you know that it's, it's getting really close. And look, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that this is a major transition. And like most major transitions, major transitions almost always come with a lot of questions, don't they? I mean, they really do. <clears throat> It's rightly caused many people to think or rethink our ministry, our philosophy of ministry, the purpose for which Grace Bible Church exists. If someone asked you that or about Grace Bible Church or even asked it about your life, why does this church exist? Why do you exist? Would you have an answer? Transitions are a great time to ask and answer that question. Whether it's collectively as a church or individually as a person, transitions are often when we ask these hard questions. A related question are cultural expectations, whether it's general cultural expectations or church culture, Christian cultural expectations, clouding, distorting, influencing our vision maybe even getting us into mission drift? These are questions that are fair. These questions are right to ask at this or any other time. They're healthy, important questions. Luke chapter 14 is going to provide some very interesting principles to help us sort this out, both individually and collectively as a church. That's why I picked Luke 14 to start August, which is, as maybe you know, the month every year that we talk about discipleship. So, Luke chapter 14, you'd think that if we were covering all of Luke chapter 14, we'd start at the beginning. I found that to be boring. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start, just to get your attention, with verses 25 through 27. Large, clou- large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, Even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There's a term that is used in a lot of American culture. I think it's way overused. It's that something would scare the hell out of you. Pardon my French. People say that about a movie. Boy, that movie scared the hell out of me. We, we saw a couple of nights ago somebody sitting in a chair and a, a cat brushed by him. And they said, wow, that scared the hell out of me. I think it's overused. I think it's overused. But if there was ever a time when that expression could be used of Scripture, I think it would probably be Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. If you listen to it, it should be at least a little bit frightful. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his family, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you take Jesus' word seriously here, that should scare the snot out of you. That's radical. That's extreme. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What's most terrifying, what's most difficult about this is it doesn't say that you have to love Jesus more than Satan. 
That's not that hard. It says that you have to love Jesus more than anything, anything in the whole wide world, more than the things that God has blessed you most with, family, spouses, parents, kids, more than anything. Now, clearly, there's some hyperbole used here. If you don't know what hyperbole is, it's exaggeration to make a point. You see it a lot in the Middle East. In fact, in the first Gulf War, Saddam Hussein called the first Gulf War the mother of all wars. He, he said that while we were absolutely pummeling Iraq. And, and everyone in the West was like, this guy is stark raving mad. Maybe, but not because he said that. That's just how people in the Middle East converse. It, it's hyperbole. They use it a lot. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggeration to make a point. Hyperbole doesn't negate the point. He, he's not really saying we have to hate our mothers and fathers, our brothers and sisters. He's saying that we have to love God supremely. It, it's exaggeration of the negative to accentuate the positive there. The positive absolutely still exists. Love Jesus supremely. And if you're not willing to, Jesus says, don't give lip service to discipleship. That's, that's radical. That, that's scary, but it's very radical. Make no mistake about it. Don't, don't try to discount Jesus' words. That's not a good idea at all. Radical. Now, here's the question we have to ask. Why would Jesus make this radical statement? Those of you who are hardcore will, will immediately say, because it's true, man. It is true. There's no doubt about it. But why does he make that statement right here? Why in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, does Jesus decide that this is the time to make this incredibly radical statement? For that answer, we have to start at the beginning. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. We're not going to read it. Here's what happens. Jesus is invited to a dinner party. It's a little bit of a trap. The Pharisees are trying to trick him or catch him. He deftly escapes the trap with the truth, but it establishes a bit of an antagonistic relationship or theme for this chapter. Antagonistic. Chapter 14, verses 7 through 14 is going to be the next section. I'm going to read it for you, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to, in your own mind as we're reading it, summarize for yourself Jesus' principal criticism of the Pharisees. Understand? I'm going to read it, and you're going to go, what is Jesus' principal beef with the Pharisees in verses 7 through 14? When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host to invite invited both of you will come to you and say, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he says to you, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, 
Do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So what do you suppose Jesus' principal criticism in telling that story is of the Pharisees? I'm going to give you just my working man's definition, working man's summation of the principal criticism. I think this passage tells us that Jesus believes the Pharisees are in it for themselves. They're they're just kind of in it for selfish motivation. Note the tension, in fact, between the worldly value of self-promotion and the godly value of serving others sacrificially, found in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What are you doing? Let's assume that most of us are gainfully employed. What are you doing in the workplace to serve people? Because that's what this passage is about. Most people go into life trying to be self-serving. Jesus here says, humble yourself, and through that God will exalt you. Humble yourself by serving other people. So what are you doing in the workplace to serve people? If your answer is, I'm doing exactly what my boss tells me to do, I'm being a really good worker that way, that I think takes you safely out of being a bad employee to being what I would call a good employee. And I think even in that, there's, there's glory because God cares about our work. But I tell you, I think there's one more step to be recognized as a godly employee. And, and I'm not saying recognized for the sake of winning an award. I doubt there are many people giving you godly employee awards. But just that other people would see how you live and go, there's got to be a God. And that is exactly what we want. We want people to see Christ in us. So it's not just serving your boss. What I would say, the key to going from good to godly is, is serving indiscriminately, not just up the chain of command. Are you serving people below you? Are you serving the intern? Are you serving the analyst, the the first-year person? Maybe you are that person. Just serve everyone. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But are you serving indiscriminately? If you want to make a difference in the marketplace, you need to do excellent work. Excellent work in and of itself glorifies God, but you also need to serve indiscriminately, up and down the chain of command. One without the other probably doesn't do all that great. In fact, there are non-Christians who are working hard. They are. Working hard for a Christian, if you're doing it for the right reason, glorifies God, but there are a lot of non-Christians who are working hard for selfish reasons. I don't know that you've distinguished yourself there, but when you serve the guy who works for you, it turns people's heads. Just something to think about. I think that's Jesus' principal criticism. The Pharisees are in it for themselves. They're in it for themselves. Self-glorification, in it for themselves. Let's look at verses 15 through 24, 
And I'm going to ask you the same question. What's the principal criticism that Jesus is leveling in verses 15 through 24? When one of those at the table with Jesus heard him, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom. Kind of a joiner, just a little bit. It's not going to go so well for him. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has already been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads in the country, country lanes, and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So what would you suppose is Jesus' principal criticism leveled in this story? If the criticism of the previous dinner guests was that they were in it for self, I believe the criticism of these dinner guests is that they're too busy to be in it at all. Isn't that fair? They're all busy. They're all too busy to join Jesus, to, to participate, presumably then, in his kingdom. That, that's the fundamental problem. Jesus' point is that God prepared a great banquet and invited the Jews, but the Jews got too busy being religious to have any time to meet Jesus. I, mean, I, I get contextually what's going on, but look, Jews aren't the only ones who get busy. Christians get busy too, don't they? We get a little busy. Do you remember when you came out of college? Maybe some of you are just out of college, and you, you had all the time in the world on your hands. I mean, you thought you were busy in, in college, but you were busy like playing basketball and, and going to parties and stuff. But, but now you're out of college, and you think you're kind of busy working, but, but I'm telling you, if you're single and just starting your career, you're not that busy because the older people here will tell you that once you get married, things are going to get busier. And once you get kids, it's going to go busy, 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 and then, and then Little League Baseball is going to totally dominate your life. That's just me talking out loud. Okay, life gets busier. Your career is going to advance, and there's going to be more pressure to manage people. That is not as fun as you would think if you're not managing people yet. It takes time, and we get kind of busy. I get kind of busy. I want you to note, carefully note, that in Jesus' illustration here, the things that prevent people from coming to the banquet are all good things. One guy's buying a field. That's good. One's getting several yokes. I'm not even sure what a yoke is of oxen, but we're presuming that's good. He now owns yokes of oxen. Fantastic. One guy's getting married. We support marriage as God ordained it. We support marriage here at Grace Bible Church. All of these things are good things, right? Good things. Until they're not. Until they prevent people from participating in the banquet that God has called us to. The question then that we have to ask ourselves, what good things do you love so much that they are preventing you 
from kingdom pursuits, from fellowship with God, from the Great Commission. Good things become bad things when those good things that God has given become idols. They, they get in the way because you love them so much of what God would have for you. What is that in your life? Everybody has something that's at least a temptation there. I have a pleasure, a plethora of things, I promise you. What are your things? The first criticism was that the Pharisees were in it for themselves. The second was that they're so busy that they're not in it at all. And so, my friends, we've come full circle. We're back to verse 25 through 27. I'm going to read now verses 25 through 33 to see if we can get a better understanding of why Jesus is saying such a radical thing as he says in verses 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me, doesn't hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other king is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think this is fascinating. Jesus warns us to count the cost. That's what he says over and over again. You're going to have to count the cost. Count the cost. You're going to have to count the cost. Here's what I think is so fascinating. There was a great cost worthy of being counted associated with the free gift of salvation. If you always thought it was only churches that did a bait and switch, no, it's Jesus. He's bait and switch. Free gift. You've heard that, right? Salvation is a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. Look, salvation is a free gift. Hang with me on this, okay? But salvation is a free gift that, gift that costs us our lives. That's what the text is saying. That's why Jesus is saying, you need to be careful on the front end to count the cost. There's a tremendous cost associated with the free gift of salvation. I had a dog named Toby. You know about Bear. Bear is smarter than your dog. Great dog. Before Bear, there was Toby. Toby was a great dog, too. Toby was given to us as a, as a gift. He was a, a registered golden retriever. He was awesome. Great, fun, super with the kids dog. Free. Free. 
He lived 12 years. When he died, I bawled my eyes out. I tallied it up at one point. At 10 years old, conservatively, Toby had cost me as a free gift at least $10,000. Hip dysplasia, $2,200. Boom. Vet bills in Houston are ridiculous. Kibbles and bits, they're not cheap for a big dog. This free gift cost me a ton. Jesus is basically in this passage telling us, I'll give you salvation for free, but your love for me will cost you your autonomous life. That's what he's saying. And you got to know that that's happening and count the cost on the front end. I'm not enamored with big crowds. I want to make sure you guys get it before you sign on. Jesus didn't die to procure your Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings. He died to procure your soul. Monday through Sunday. It's a free gift that costs us everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's a free gift that costs us everything. Now, you ought to be asking yourself, if you really are counting the cost, you ought to be asking yourself something like, Is salvation really worth giving up my life? It's the question you ought to be asking, but I would just want to tweak that ever so slightly. If you were already asking that, you're on the right track, but here's what I would tell you. It's not a perfect question. The reality is you aren't living without salvation. You're just distracting yourself from dying. That's what it is not to know Jesus. It's life as a series of distractions to prevent the inevitable and thoughts thereof. That's all it is. So it's not quite is salvation worth giving up my life. God designed life to be lived in relationship with him. In fact, in relationship with him is what gives us life. Basically, he saved us so that we could illustrate his love and his redemption to this darkened world. That, That was his agenda when he saved our souls. Look at verses 34 and 35, right as he's finishing up this whole passage. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's going on? Here's how it works. Some people are just in it for themselves. No bueno. Some people are so busy that they can't find time to join God at the banquet table. That's that's not good either. What we're called to in this passage is a radical commitment to loving Jesus supremely. That's exactly what it takes to follow Jesus, to love Jesus supremely. Every time you sin, it's because you're loving something else supremely, by the way. And in the end, there's a warning. Salt loses its saltiness. What are we talking about? There were about 12 to 15 different 
real solid, tangible uses for salt in the Roman Empire. Salt was super important. In fact, one historian said that the Roman Empire would have crumbled had it not been for salt. Used it for all sorts of things. And that's really Jesus' point here. It says that salt is no good if it loses its saltiness. Those of you who are scientists know that salt is a stable compound, right? You can't really lose your saltiness, but what happens is salt gets diluted. There's so many other things that are, that are put into salt that all of a sudden it, it loses its effectiveness because it's so diluted. You're in it for yourself, dilution. You've got all these other things that prevent you from the kingdom and diluted. Jesus says, if you love me supremely, you'll be useful. You'll matter. You'll be significant. It'll be a fantastic life. John 10.10, right? We've been studying John 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly, right? Super abundantly, maybe, if you're looking at the Greek. Purpose, meaning, value, all the joy and the peace and, and the other good things that come with it. That's what God wants for us. This passage demands that we ask the question, are we willing to count the cost? About nine years ago, when we were still meeting in the movie theater, I got asked to come to a really large church's staff meeting. And there were 25 or 30 people at this staff meeting, and that wasn't even half of their staff. I mean, it's a big group of people. And they're asking me all these questions because we're meeting in this movie theater and we've, we've started to grow a little bit. And, and they just want to understand who we are and, and what we're doing. So I'm trying to answer their questions honestly and, and maybe even sound somewhat intelligent. And, you know, in my mind, I'm doing okay. And then somebody asked me this question that totally stumps me. He says, how is Grace Bible Church reaching the casual Christian?" I start thinking about that for a few seconds, and it probably takes me three, four, five seconds. And finally, I said, we're not. We don't. We don't, we don't reach the casual Christian. They go to other churches. They, they do. That's, that's what happens. Other churches that have more programs or, or better facilities that don't smell at that point like stale popcorn and don't have dirty dancing Havana Nights infomercials come on during the sermons right behind me. Casual Christians don't love church in the movie theater. We don't reach casual Christians. See, the purpose statement for Grace Bible Church, we exist to glorify God by making disciples who transform the world. What about that purpose statement screams casual Christian? It doesn't. We exist individually and collectively to glorify God. Our lives, our ministries are meant to reflect the attributes of God. Our principal focus is the making of disciples. That's timely. That's, that's costly. It's messy. And ultimately, the goal is to transform the world. What about transformation of the world? Says casual Christian. It doesn't. We ask people to sacrifice. We ask people 
to serve in ministry, this children's ministry thing. It's, it's hard. You're going to have to come back to church if you want to go to church every week. We're going to ask you to do it. It's just how it works here. It always has, always will. It's just who we are. It's what we do. We ask people to join growth groups and community groups. Every year, I give this talk. This is the Death March growth group talk. Here we go. We want you to go through growth group. If you've never done it, go through growth group if you are committed. And if you're not committed, don't sign up for a growth group because it's not for you. You're going to bail out. It's hard. You've got to do five lessons every week in preparation for a two-plus-hour meeting every week. We're going to ask you to be very regular in your attendance. If you start flaking out, we're going to ask you to start over. We're going to ask you to join a community that is diverse, meaning if you're 25 and single, we're not going to put you in with a bunch of 25-year-old singles. We don't think the 25-year-old singles are the best people to disciple the 25-year-old singles. That's just a fundamental assumption that we have. They're going to have a lot of fun together, sometimes too much fun. They're just not going to disciple each other. And we're a disciple-making church, so we don't do it that way. We mix everybody up. We make it as diverse as possible. Rich, poor, single, married, black, white. We're going to throw you all in together, and you're going to learn how to love each other. That's how it works. We're going to invite you into that heterogeneous community, and we're going to ask you to be vulnerable and accountable in that group. If you're not committed to the process of being equipped to do ministry for the rest of your life, you're not going to see the value in it. It's hard. But if you want to be equipped, if you want to use the gifts that God has given you unto his glory for the rest of your life, I think it's the best thing in the world. I really do. I I think it's unbelievably effective. But it's not for the faint of heart. We ask a lot of Grace Bible Church people. We do. We ask it because we believe that Jesus demanded it. If you think I'm harsh, I'm a patsy compared to gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Trust me. I'm a patsy. We ask it because Jesus demands it, absolutely demands it. And we also think that the gospel and the kingdom are absolutely worth it. They are worth your reordered priorities. I promise you, they're worth it. Count the cost. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a free gift. (laughs) It costs so much but it produces such joy. Father, I pray that every person here who is in the midst of genuinely counting the cost would understand that their greatest joy is found in your will. Their greatest joy is found in participating in your kingdom according to the gifts that they have. Father, I pray that we as a church would be radically committed to making disciples, that we would never deviate from that agenda, that mission, that purpose that you gave us 11 years ago. God, please help us to glorify you in everything that we do by making disciples who actually really do for real change the world. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.